If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 8. We're going to be diving into that in just a moment. We're in the middle of a series walking through the Psalms, and, and here's why. We want to be a church. We want to be a people who are soaked and saturated in God's Word, and here's why. Um, we are all creatures of habit, all of us. We're all creatures of habit. Some of us, our habit is simply to try to avoid habits, but all of us, we are creatures of habit. We have patterns in our lives, things that we have instilled in our lives, created so that we can navigate through life. So that's why we, for example, brush our teeth more or less the same time in the same way every day. We have to think about it every single time. That's why you can drive to work kind of on autopilot and you show up and you're like, man, I don't even remember driving here, right? There's these patterns, these habits that we create that help us get through life. And it's not just in how we act, it's also in how we think. That there are processes, patterns of thought that we have that help us to inform and to interpret the world around us. And we create this grid, if you will, of how we interpret, how we understand everything that we're seeing in this world, how we should um, think about it. We build those grids through our friends, through our families, through social media, through the culture, all different ways. And we're bringing all of that in, and that is what creates how we interpret, how we understand the world around us. And yet, as believers, God calls us to think differently. That, That as believers, it is fundamental, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we think differently from the world. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are importing, we're downloading information from the world all the time. And what Paul's saying here is that we have to take all that information and we have to submit it to the authority of Scripture, that it tells us what to accept, what to reject, and that there are patterns, if we're not careful, that we can get into that we have to break away from And we have to realign our hearts and our minds with the Word of God so that there is increasing agreement and alignment between our thoughts and God's thoughts. And so we are in the Psalms because what better place to soak up the Word of God? These are songs. These are our poetry that we're supposed to to soak up. We're supposed to marinate in. We're supposed to relish in. And God uses them as we soak them up to reshape our hearts, but also to reboot our brains to change how we think, to change how we see the world so that we begin to think not like the world, but to think like God. So that's the goal. That's what we're aimed at. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Psalm 8 this morning. And if you would, you can just follow along with me as we read this together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So here's how I imagine this plays out, all right? So David, who's the author of this psalm, David is out in nature and he's all alone. And he's out under the night sky. If you remember, that's what it says earlier on, that he sees the moon and the stars. He sees the works of God's hands in the heavens. And so David sees all of that, and he has one of those moments where he's just caught up in it. 
he's so inspired, he's so moved by what he's seen in the heavens that it's like it wells up inside of him and he has no choice but to simply shout out, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. He is so moved, he's so captivated and overwhelmed in that moment that he has no choice but to simply shout out his praise to God. Maybe you've had a moment like that. Maybe there's been a moment where you've seen something in nature. Maybe it's been a sunset over a beach, maybe a view from a mountaintop. Maybe it's a song that you've heard at a concert or, or with a band that you're hearing. Or maybe it's the cry of your newborn child, right? We have these moments. Maybe you didn't even attach it to a creator, but there's just one of those moments where you just feel it building up inside of you and you're so moved, you're so inspired that it's like you have no choice. You've got to laugh or cry or shout or sing or something. It's just going to explode out of you. And so David, he sees the works of God's hands. He sees the heavens and the stars and all of it. And he's so moved by it that it's like, it just wells up inside of him until it's going to explode and he simply has no choice but to give praise to his creator. See, this is what creation does. It's designed to bring us into worship of our God. Creation sings out the praise of God and invites us to join in so that we, we relish in creation. We bask in creation. We enjoy creation and yet then we push past it to worship the creator. And yet far too often we don't take that next step. So far too often we stop with relishing in creation, do we not? Far too often we stop where we are falling in love with the gift instead of the giver. We become infatuated with creation instead of creator. And let's think about this, this just for a moment, just how absurd this actually is. Think about how ridiculous it is that there is a God of the universe who wants to have a relationship with us, and yet we would exchange that for a relationship of something that he's created for us to enjoy. That would be on par with me uh, falling in love with my wife's cooking instead of my wife. So my, my wife, Carrie, she's a really good cook, and uh, especially desserts, though. Like her desserts, like they're like crack. They're just really addictive. I can't stop eating them. And so she makes this one chocolate marble cheesecake, all right? So imagine for a moment that I'm relishing in this chocolate marble cheesecake, and then I was like, babe, you know what? You're great. I really love you and everything, but you know what? Me and the marble cheesecake, we're going to go start a life together. It's, just, it's nothing personal, but me and the cheesecake, man, it's so good. We're just going to kind of move out. It's going to be me and the cheesecake, and we're just going to kind of do our thing. I'll come back when I need some more cheesecake, but otherwise it's going to be me and the cheesecake. Like, how insane would that be? Literally, there would be people coming with straight jackets for me, Right? Like, it's insane, and yet, essentially, that's what we do when we turn to God and say, God, you're great. We really love you. Thank you for all the things that you've given to me, and now I'm going to run off with these things. Now, understand that those gifts are not bad things. They're, they're great things. They're wonderful things that God has given to us. My, my wife, my kids, they're wonderful things, and yet, they are not God. That there is a relationship that I'm designed to have with God as God, as my creator, that I cannot have and enjoy with anything else. And so I relish in my wife's cheesecake. It is so good. So good. And then that leads me to praise, first of all, my wife, because she is amazing, but also to then praise my God, who has given me this stunningly beautiful woman, even at three and 32 weeks pregnant, but also who makes desserts that have a street value, okay? So that's, that's the whole point, is that, that this creation it doesn't just stop with the creation. It pushes past. I'm supposed to push past it to worship the God who created it. Creation sings out its praise to God and invites us to join in. And so David, right, he is seeing this in the heavens. 
and it leads him to praise the creator God. But then looking at creation, God, uh, excuse me, David makes two other observations that I want us to kind of unpack this morning. And I want to look at these in reverse order. And the first one is this, that God cares for and gives attention to his creation in a way that is disproportionate uh, as compared to the rest of creation. That, that, that God gives the lion's share of his care, his attention, his love to humankind in a way that is disproportionate to the rest of creation. And so look at what he says here in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So compared to the rest of creation, just think about this for the moment, we are relatively insignificant and puny. I mean, we are. I mean, just think about it for the moment. Like if you were an alien, all right, let's objectively take a step back. You're an alien race. You come and you see all of creation. You see everything that exists in our solar system. And you were to see that, like you would not look at humankind and be, oh, wow, that's, that's the end all. Now, I mean, think about what David is seeing even just in the heavens, like the cosmos, the universe. It is magnificent. The, the grandeur of it. It's spectacular. It's breathtaking. It's awe-inspiring. And comparatively, we're we're kind of specks and puny and we're kind of fleshy and hairy and weird ears. You know, I mean, there's, objectively speaking, there's nothing about us that stands us apart from creation that makes us more unique, more powerful, more beautiful, except that God cares about us. Now, I know some of you, you're, you're new parents. And so you look at little Johnny and you're like, no, 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 he is more wonderful than anything. And I get that. I totally understand that. I was a new parent once. I had a small child. I have like 10,000 pictures of my newborn son that all look the same. Anybody do that? You're just amazed by them. You're like, oh my goodness, take another picture. Oh, look, he's smiling a little bit. Oh no, that's just gas. Take another picture. Oh, he twitched. You know, take another picture. I've got thousands of pictures. They all look the same, Right? Because we see that God has designed our kids like that so that we will adore them so that we will not kill them. That's just God in his infinite wisdom. That's how he designed it. But objectively speaking, if we were to take a step back as an alien race and see all of this, we're not more, we're not more numerous than the rest of creation. We're, we're not more spe- uh, spectacular than the rest of creation. Right? We're not more powerful than much of creation. Right? And yet God has created us uniquely to have a relationship with him. That God has disproportionately assigned to us honor and status and glory that's reserved for us alone. Because he wants to have a relationship with us. He's created us to walk and to talk with him. And see, all, all that goes back to Genesis 1. If you remember, you know, there's a beautiful. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. See, what makes us unique is that unlike all the rest of creation, we were made in the image of God. That unlike the rest of creation, we were designed to reflect him as creator in our unity, in our diversity. And as such, we have an intrinsic value that cannot be lost, diminished, or changed regardless of socioeconomic status, race, religion, anything. Health, wealth, how the world has treated us, our appearance, any of that. None of that can change the fact that there is an intrinsic value assigned to every single person. So I have a, a dollar bill here. And uh, so it's worth a dollar. I know that's 
complicated. Now, if I was to take this dollar bill and I was to crush it, it's still worth a dollar. If I was to put it on the ground and I kind of stomp on it a few times, guess what? It's a little messed up, but it's still worth a dollar. If I was to take it outside and I'd get it all in mud and get it all messy, or maybe I even take it and I flush it down the toilet, it comes out the other side of all the sewage and everything, and it's stinky and nasty and dripping. Guess what? It's still worth a dollar. There's an intrinsic value to this piece of paper that the government has bestowed upon it in the same way that human beings have an intrinsic value that cannot be lost or diminished or changed. Every human being who has ever lived and ever will live, and it cannot it cannot be changed, lost or diminished, regardless of anything else that happens, regardless of how the world treats us, regardless of whether we're healthy or not or frail or strong or anything else. And what that means is that every single life matters. Every single life matters. Not just the powerful lives, not just the rich lives, not just the born lives, not just the white lives, not just the American lives. Okay, can I, can I speak to you guys as adults for a moment? All right, we're just going to get serious here for a second. In our society today, every life does not matter. In our society today, every life does not matter, and it is an affront to the will and the heart of God. In our society today, black lives do not matter as much as white lives. And I don't need another story on CNN. I don't need another news feed. I don't need another kid lying dead in the street to know that racism is real and it exists. You know how I know that racism is real and it exists? It's because last I checked, sin was still running rampant through the human heart. And it is sin that burrows into our hearts And it perverts us so that we give preferential treatment, that we give more value to people who look like us, sound like us, talk like us, and think like us. The way that I know that racism is not solved, that it is a problem, that it is an evil in this world is because sin still exists. That's not a political statement, that's a theological statement. You know how I know that poor and weak lives do not matter as much as rich and powerful lives? Because right now, there's an estimated between 40 to 50 million people, men, women, and children, who are being sold in slavery all over this world through human trafficking. An estimated 4.5 million of those are women and children specifically being sold into sex trafficking for prostitution that in our country alone is an estimated 300,000 kids who are being trafficked as prostitutes in our country. Every life does not matter pornography that preys upon the weak and the marginalized women and children who cannot defend themselves for whatever reason is a 57 billion dollar industry estimated our country alone 12 billion dollars 3 billion it estimated for child pornography alone the urban institute just released statistics called in, calling atlanta not that far from here the hot spot for child pornography there's a title that you want with an estimated $300 million in revenue in Atlanta alone. In my own city of Dallas, where I'm from and I'm, I love and I'm ashamed of, they are hosting uh, this next week the Exotica Convention, which will have 150 adult industry entertainers, plus hundreds of booths and vendors, to literally celebrate 
an industry that preys upon the weak and the marginalized and fuels sex trafficking all over this world. Every life does not matter in our world. And don't even get me started about the genocide that's been going on in our country for the last four and a half generations, last four and a half decades, where 55 million unborn children have been sacrificed on the altar of self and so-called progress because it's really in line to kill our kids. That's genius. Believe me, every life does not matter, and it should not be. It is an affront to the heart of God. But when we take a human person and we strip them of their dignity, of that intrinsic value that God bestows upon them as having been made in his image, if we reduce them to just being a a pile of tissue and cells, then that's what happens. The powerful prey upon the weak. Again, not a political statement. That's a theological statement. That's reality. And one of the reasons that this does not bother us the way that it should, that this does not break our hearts in the way that it breaks God's hearts is because we think that we're in the strong camp. Now, we may not be at the top of the food chain, but we think we're up there somewhere. And hey, it's kind of good to be on top, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the way of the world. The strong eat the weak. It's survival of the fittest. And so we may not be eating the weak ourselves, but hey, at least we're kind of near the top and we feel good about being up there. We're strong competent, powerful people. But let me tell you that God is turning all that on its head. God is turning that whole dynamic, that whole pattern of the world upside down. And this is actually what David sees in verse 2 that we skipped. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of, the NIV translates this, against your foes. To still the enemy and the Avenger. See, what causes David to first shout God's praises isn't just creation. It's not just what he saw in the heavens. It's not just how he sees humankind in relation to the rest of creation. No, what David sees here, what so inspires him, is that he, as he sees through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, somehow he gets this, he knows that despite how the world operates, God does things differently. That God does not use the strong, that God does not need the strong but that God is turning this whole pattern upside down, that he uses the weak and the helpless, the insignificant, the babies and the infants to triumph over the strong. David says, God, you are so great. Not because you use the powerful, not because you use the strong, but because you use the weak. Now just think about this for David. I mean, in his context, he's a king. He's living in a highly militarized reality, okay? So there's the strong tribes that prey on the weak tribes, and there's the strong nations that prey on the the weak nations, and they enslave them. And yet somehow David looks into what God is doing, how God works, and he walks away saying, oh God, you are great because you don't use the powerful, you don't use the strong, you don't use the rich, you don't need armies, you don't need a political agenda, you don't need a spokesperson. God, you use babies and infants to conquer your enemies, Think about how remarkable that is. Think about how remarkable that is. I mean, anybody have a, you know, a three-month-old and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to put all this responsibility on the three-month-old. No, no, no. But are you going to let your three-month-old drive? They can't reach the pedals. I, they can't do anything. 
That's his point. These are babies. These are infants. They just lie around doing nothing except making messes out both ends. That's all they do, okay? And they torture you with sleep deprivation. That's what babies do. Luckily, you love them, and God has created that, okay? You think they're amazing. Keeps them alive. God doesn't need the strong. And David says, you use the weak and the insignificant, the powerless. And God says, yeah, those are exactly the kind of people that I want to use. Because it's in weakness that God's power is put on display. See, we believe, most of us, we believe that we're in the strong camp. We figure that we're on the top of the food chain. We figure that that's kind of our rightful place. We've earned it. We've, we've arrived. That's where we are. Better to be up there than to be anywhere else. And so in some sense, this doesn't resonate with us. In some sense, we're not even sure if we like the sound of this. All right, so let me just try to help you out just a little bit and just remind you that your strength and your power is fiction. That that strength that you have, that you think you have, that is a fragile illusion. And if you don't believe me, then go down to the local hospital, visit a nursing home, and see the people who used to be strong and used to be powerful and used to have dreams and used to be smarter and more competent than you. See, in our our society, we like to hide the people who are weak and infirm so that we're not faced with our own mortality. We're not faced with the reality that our strength and our beauty and our success, that all of it is skin deep and it is fading, and over time, it all goes away. Always. See, we like to think that we own that spot on the totem pole. You know, that's our spot. We earned it. We belong here. This is where we are. In reality, we are hanging on a knife's edge. Just think about how easy it would be to lose all of it. I mean, it takes one phone call to turn your world upside down. You think you're strong? You get one diagnosis from the doctor that you don't want. One bad deal at work, and you don't have that career. One bad decision, you lose your family. One bad bump in the stock market and all that security is gone. Driving home today, one accident. And that terrifies us. That terrifies us. And that's why we work so hard to make sure that everybody thinks that we're strong and we're capable. And we maximize our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. And we're, we've got it all pulled together because we are terrified that if someone was to see how weak we actually are, how fragile our strength actually is, then... They're stronger and they might eat us. But God is turning that whole pattern on its head. God is taking that whole food chain and he's turning it upside down. He's using the weak. It's through the weak that his power is revealed. It's weakness that triumphs over strength. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians 12. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in not strength but weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Listen to this. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Anybody want to sign up for that list? Anybody like, oh yeah, give me, I want weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. But see, Paul gets it because what does he say? For when I am weak, then I'm strong. It's in our weakness that we are faced with the reality that we are not the masters of our own destiny, that we are not the rulers of our own faith, that we aren't self-sufficient, that we are wholly dependent upon a God 
that it's in our weakness that we learn to obey and to trust him. It's in our weakness that we experience the power of God that we cannot experience otherwise, which means that if we are never weak, then we are never truly strong. And God is not looking for powerful people, smart people, competent people, amazing people to conquer this world. No, God is building his, his kingdom not on the backs of strong people, not on the backs of competent people and smart people. He's building his kingdom on the back of weak people who are weak enough to say, God, I need you. If you don't show up, all is lost. Because it's when we're weak that God shows up. In fact, that's how God has already saved the world, is it not? That's how God has already saved the world. This is his pattern from the beginning. That that Jesus, when he comes to save the world, notice he doesn't come on a horse with an army. That comes later. But when he first comes to save the world, he comes as what? A baby, as an infant. Sound familiar? See, he comes and he's weak and he's helpless. He's at the mercy of his parents and, and the world around him. He becomes weak for us. And then he crushes sin and death out of his mouth It's the death knoll, if I can put it that way, for sin and death when he says, Father, thy will be done and not mine. And in his weakness, he is crushed and he's killed. But it's in that that God's awesome power is on display as sin and death are overcome, are triumphed over, as God raises Jesus from the dead to life, as he places all the nations and all the authorities under the feet of Jesus So that the name of Jesus, the name that was despised and mocked and spit upon, that at that name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the praise of God the Father. See, that is how God is establishing his pattern of of strength in this world. It's not through strength, it's through weakness. God's power works through weakness. And God is not building his kingdom through us strong, competent people. He's using the powerless, the ones who are weak, the babies, the infants, the ones who know enough to say, God, I need you, and if you don't show up, we're lost. And God says, I've got this. Watch what I can do. And so heaven forbid, heaven forbid that we would be a people, a church, who are so smart and competent and capable, and I know you all are because I know you, but heaven forbid that we would be so smart, so capable, have it so together that we would avoid our weakness, run from our weakness, and miss out on what God is going to do through us in his power. Like, heaven help us if we are so brilliant and have everything so pulled together and we've got everything figured out that there's no room for the power of God. Instead, let's be a people who are spirit-powered, who are weak enough to say, God, I don't have this. You are leading me into places where I feel weak, but I'm going to follow and I'm scared, but God, I need you to show up. If you don't show up, this ship is sunk. Let's boast in our weaknesses. Let's brag on our failures like the Apostle Paul so that we can brag all the more in the power of our God. Look, I know you because I know me and we avoid weaknesses, right? This is is just common sense. You gotta avoid weakness. You gotta hide it away. You gotta minimize it. You gotta get away from it. But I'm telling you, if all we do is what we can do, then we never know what God can do. And I don't know what that looks like for you, okay? I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe for some of you, it's something at work. It's something that's going on where you know that God is leaning on you, where you sense that there's an injustice, there's some conversation that needs to happen, and you feel weak by the idea of broaching that subject or standing up in that moment. But I'm telling you, if you don't do it despite that weakness, then God, you're missing out on how God might want to powerfully work through your weakness. 
Some of you parents, you are terrified of talking to your kids about Jesus. So you drop them off and you leave them in the children's ministry, which is a great first step. But listen, I understand that. You're like, you're terrified that your five-year-old may ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. You feel weak when I have a five-year-old. That happens to me all the time. Okay? But if you don't step into that weakness, if you don't trust God in that moment, then you're missing out how God may want to use you in the life of your child. Some of you feel weak at the idea of talking to a neighbor or a friend or a relative about what God has done in your life. You don't know how to do that. You feel weak, and that terrifies you. And if you don't follow God into that weakness, you are going to miss out on how God wants to work powerfully through your weakness. I don't know what this looks like for you, but I believe right now that there are some of you that you know, you know, God is leaning on you in some way. You've sensed that, that he's saying, hey, come over here, try this, follow me over here. And you're going, no, 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 I feel weak over there. I'm not going to go over there. I'm strong here. I'm not going over there. And we are missing the opportunity to see what God will do through you. If we only do what we know we can do, we will never know what God can do through us. You know who I admire most in the world? Who I admire most, the people that I admire most. It's not the, it's not the smart people. It's not the confident people. It's not the strong people. It's not the wealthy people. It's not the beautiful people. I respect some of them. I might be jealous of some of them, but I don't admire them. No, the people who I admire are the people who, in their weakness, as I've sat at their bedside table or at their bedside in the hospital, or I've had conversations across the table, gotten coffee with, sat on a couch together, and in their weakness, and they know they're in their weakness, they have experienced, and I've seen the power of God in their lives. And there is a strength, there's a hope. People who are willing to say, I don't know, I don't know how to do this, but I think that God's calling me to do this. And in, in their weakness, they've followed him. Those are the people that I admire. There's this inner strength that is not theirs. It's the power of God working through their weakness. And that is a power that cannot be crushed or defeated. That is the power that raises the dead to life. That is the power that has overcome the world. That is the power that, that one day will make all things right, that will be the end of sin and death and evil. And heaven forbid we would be a people who are so strong and competent and smart that we leave no room for weakness where God's power can work. Instead, let us be a people who are spirit-powered and weak enough to say, God, if you don't show up, we're sunk. And then like David, and then like David, we can say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? Because you don't use the strong and the powerful. You use weak, broken people like us to conquer the strong, to overcome this world, people that Jesus died for, that the world despises. And yet it's through us, God, that we have seen your great and awesome power. Those are the type of people that we need to be. In just a moment, we're going we're gonna to take a communion. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, um, we are reminded and we're remembering that Jesus became weak for us. We're being reminded that Jesus, though he was seated at the right hand of the Father, he humbled himself 
he became weak, even to the point of death, and that through his death, God's power was made manifest, that God's power was clearly and awesomely on display, crushing sin and death, creating an opportunity for eternal life for us, offering us forgiveness for sins. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate and we remember that Jesus Christ, in his weakness, in his humility, was crushed for us so that God's awesome power could be displayed. If you're a believer with us this morning, we want to to welcome you to join us. And you don't have to be part of GVF. You don't have to be a member with us. We just want to invite you to come and to to remember and to celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, If you're not a believer, we ask that you just stay seated and you don't have to, uh, you know, don't worry about people are not going to be, you know, taking names or anything like that. Don't feel like anybody, it's chaos. So just have a seat and, and it's all cool. But for us, this is sacred if you're a believer. And so in a moment, if you're a believer, you can go out on the side and come down the front. There's going to be four couples up here serving, and you can make your way back up to your seats. Uh, But this is a time that we just need to stop and remember that Jesus didn't come here and conquer through strength. He came and conquered through weakness. And if he's our master, if he's our Lord, then how else would it look for us? We are so ashamed of our weakness often, and we despise it in ourselves. We look in the mirror and we go, why am I like that? Why can't I do this better? And we try to ignore it, and yet those are the moments, those are the areas where oftentimes God wants to do his most remarkable work in you. Let's be weak enough to say, God, I need you. Step into my life and show me your power.